Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And we want to again thank the listeners who have been growing steadily with us as we are now far enough along to receive um, some feedback. We want to know more about what you think of the podcast and what kind of musical moments you love and if you want us to talk about them yeah we're in it we're in it for the long haul now i think i mean we're this is episode eight so now you know we're serious about this yeah (laughs) we didn't just we didn't just start it uh and do like three or four and then then decide to stop we we really want to keep going with this thing and we're excited that we have listeners yeah we have a very extensive schedule and a lot of ideas but we still want to know your ideas as well. We'd also like to thank listener Eric Clausen, who is also our brother-in-law, and he's the host of the Faithful Forebears podcast. He gave us a shout out, and um, his podcast has been around a lot longer than ours. The Faithful Forebears is a podcast where Eric focuses on uh, faithful men and women in history, so early church stuff from all over the ages, and each episode it is about a different historical figure and it's very well researched and um, a lot of our listeners would appreciate its style and also i was a guest on one episode because he did a musician the medieval composer guillaume de mochot so check that out as well yeah j.s bach of course could be considered a faithful forebear oh yeah totally Um, somebody who was really really a faithful um, christian um, an important lutheran and I'm sure that Eric will get to J.S. Bach at some point on the podcast. Yeah, he will eventually. He, with his podcast format, he's definitely going to wind up having to talk about Bach at some point. Okay, well, let's get to today's moment of Bach. Today's moment comes from the opening sonatina from the cantata Gotteszeit ist die allerbeste Zeit. So we have here an early cantata, written in 1707 or 1708. Maybe it was for a funeral of a mayor in Mühlhausen, where Bach worked at this time. It also could have been Bach's uncle, the funeral that this was written for. But that puts Bach at like 22 or 23 years old. And I always love the early Bach stuff. I have a soft spot for that because he tended to be quite experimental. My first pick for this podcast was the was another early piece, another early cantata, the Nun kommt der Heiden Highland, and he was very experimental with the plucking strings and the strange start to that recitative. And um, his influence for this piece was a lot like his influence for our episode five, where Alex talked about the Pasakalian fugue for the organ. We know that Bach famously made this very long journey to go see composer and organist Dietrich Buxtehude, and it meant so much to him that he went so many miles. He was very influenced by the work of Buxtehude. 
this piece is a funeral cantata whose title means God's time is the very best time. God's time for our death. The musical ensemble is so strange here. When you think of an orchestra or a typical group of instruments, you would think maybe there's a choir and some strings. Let's say cellos, violas, violins, right? and maybe an oboe or a flute here and there, and maybe some other instrument, bass instruments like a bass or a keyboard instrument like an organ, maybe in this period of time, a harpsichord. But in this piece, the forces that are called for, aside from the choir, is two recorders, two viola da gambas, and a bass instrument. And a viola da gamba is an early instrument looks like a cello and that it's played between the legs but it has way more strings and it has frets and it has a much more severe and piercing tone and almost lighter and fluffier tone and difficult to describe you just have to hear it right and then the recorders are an interesting choice because the recorder is also an old instrument if i say like picture a flute i know what you pictured you pictured what we call a transverse flute, in other words, a sideways flute. You picture it a silver-looking thing that someone's holding off to the side of their mouth and they're blowing through the side of it, right? And that is a transverse flute, and nowadays that's what we call a flute, But and Bach used that instrument. But these are recorders, and recorders, uh, famously now, the instrument that you play in like third grade that you learned in music class that you had to bring home to your parents and they were annoyed because it was so loud. <laughs> but the recorder was actually the old version of a flute that predates the fl the modern flute. And in some languages, the word flute means recorder in a very general sense. And But the recorders fell out of fashion. And it's like in a modern orchestra, you wouldn't think of a recorder being there, right? You would, you would think of a flute. If you go see an orchestra at a concert hall, they don't have recorders in most of their music. They have flutes probably two flutes in there, transverse flutes. But these were recorders and they had a certain symbolism. They symbolized death and they were often appropriate for funeral services. And we'll see why as we talk about my chosen moment for the day. So overall, the cantata is sort of about rules and guidelines to follow, to do better uh, on earth, especially as you prepare for your eventual death. And uh, it's a lot of musical preaching, so to speak. Like there's one movement that's called Bestella Dein Haus, 
which means put your house in order so that it's all ready to go. And there's a movement titled, Lord, teach us to consider that we must die. There's one called Es ist der alte Bund. It is the ancient law that man must die. And so a lot of the cantata is the forced acceptance of death, but also there was a lot of bright moments in there too. Like, besides this simple poetry that Bach uses in this cantata, there's also a quote from Jesus Christ as he was being crucified that he said to the other person, Today you will be with me in paradise. So there's a lot of really interesting parallels between, um, it's not just all doom and gloom with the dying, it's also uh, very optimistic in terms of uh, theology. Plus, people of this time period had a much different relationship with death than we do now, and I think that's always worth remembering. They had their own plagues and sicknesses and wars and stuff, but more of them died, like, you know, percentage-wise than we do now. And not to say that we don't have our own issues now, but they had such an intimate relationship with dying that's so different than our modern way because of a lot of things, right? Like we would never give up modern medicine these days, but it did change uh, and prolong the way we live. And we live differently now. And sometimes we shuffle aside the concept of death in our sort of secular lives and we sort of try not to think about that, you know? And that's not the case back then. Back then, they were thinking about it all the time. It was something to be grappled with. This cantata begins with an instrumental introduction, a little unusual in Bach's later cantatas. They usually open with a bang with a really big chorus or something. But this one starts with a short sonatina, it's called. And our musical moments are from this sonatina. This is One of my favorite works by Bach, by the way. Hard to say that on a podcast about Bach. But when you think of his masterworks or a composer's masterworks, you might think of something bigger. Like you might think for Bach, the Mass in B minor or one of the Passions or something like that. Meanwhile, this is like a 20, 25 minute long cantata, but I think it's just an absolute masterwork. I think it's worth checking out because of just how emotional it is and it has such range. By the way, there's also the, um, all over this, the almost like I'll call a heartbeat motif. It's present in the entire cantata and in the beginning here. It's the rhythm that's like long, short, short, long, short, short, like that. And it gives the piece a nice little motif that you can remember. But it also is, in its own way, almost like a heartbeat or like a bum, 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 like a funeral dirge type of thing. 
There's something so magical about this opening sonatina and Bach's young experimental writing, and it has to do with the recorders. But uh, before the recorders even come in, I have an extra bonus moment here. Uh, right at the beginning, we just have the viola da gambas playing, and you hear them come in, and then you hear this very striking chord that happens right here. In the context of its historical time, this harmony makes sense once it resolves downwards. However, I love this little moment because it sounds so modern to my ears. It almost sounds like a jazzier type of chord because of how many interesting notes it has in it that doesn't, it almost doesn't sound like a Baroque chord if you just play it all vertically. And yet that must have been very much on purpose by Bach to really have a little heart-wrenching moment. There's actually quite a few similarities, Alex, between this episode and the last one. The last one, Jesu Meine Freude, might have been written for a funeral as well. But also, there is a aspect of people trying to sing or play in unison that mm. is also similar here. This is one of those musical moments that the first time I heard it, this was a piece I wasn't very familiar with until a couple of years ago, maybe, for whatever reason. The first time I heard the recorders playing in, let's call this a half unison, I, I was like, what is what are they doing i've never heard bach write musical texture this way he never really does it again this is an experiment i've never heard another baroque composer do this what he does is he's got two recorder players an instrument that's already really hard to play and tune but he makes them both play and in his other work sometimes as well he makes them both play in unison which means that they are both playing the exact same thing it's not very common for the music of this time period. Mostly everyone has their own individual parts to weave into the texture of counterpoint. But it's not quite that simple here. Here you got two recorders. They play sort of in unison. And then they break off. Sometimes there's only one playing and the other one's sitting out. But then they do this little dance where they switch off one of them holding and the other one moving on this one single tone, almost ringing out. And this is sort of like a suffering motif. It's almost heart-wrenching. It's so unbelievably expressive to have one thing just stay put and the other one just moving against it so dissonantly you know these are these make for some very crunchy tones that interact with each other and there's also like the idea of the effort of how hard it is to play something this hard 
being shown forth in the music. As composers, we, we think about this kind of thing a lot. If your music's hard, you, you don't want your music to be too hard, then no one will play it. If your music, however, is hard on purpose, it can work to a really good musical effect. And the effort of players trying to play, not to say that they're going to do bad, but they're going to do good, but you can hear their effort, and that, may, that maybe serves the music, like the theme, right? And I think that's the case here. These recorder players are trying so hard and they have like all these issues with their instrument staying in tune with the orchestra. And then and then on top of that, Bach asks them to do this outrageous thing where one of them is playing and the other one is playing their switch there's like kind of switching off. This sort of suffering effect is so effective, um, in my opinion. I did an arrangement of this recently where I used two violins for the recorder parts, and then we also had the, a viola and cello playing the, the viola da gamba parts, and I used organ and harp to form the, the accompaniment, and had them play, had the string players play with mutes on to get a little bit of a different effect to hear the uh, violins playing. It was also really interesting too, because that's just ever so slightly different. Well, this is kind of a good time to talk about what dissonance is in music. I mean, dissonance and consonance, right? In other words, tension, eh, something sounds a little iffy, and then resolution, okay, now it sounds better. And when we hear something that sounds tense, kind of going back to my idea of music being very full of metaphor, it makes us feel a little tense. It reminds us of times in our lives when we've felt tense about something. Then when we hear something resolve, and then when we hear it sound nice again, it reminds us of times in our lives in our lives when something has now gone right again, or we have returned home, or we've returned to a sense of peace about something, or we have had a reunion with someone who was gone. Sometimes I like to call this the rubber band effect. Imagine a rubber band in stasis, if you will. You're kind of you're holding it, but you're not pulling on it. And when you hear something dissonant, it'd be like if you pulled on it or had somebody pull on one of the strands of it one way, and you just want that to return. Sometimes it gets snapped back and in some sort of a violent uh, way, but then, but then eventually after that, you will have some resolution. Other times it will be like sort of gently laid back in its spot with a gentle resolution. And I think music is full of those kind of metaphors, and it really gives you a kind of a gut feeling that something is not right, and then something is, okay, back to normal. Right, and what makes Baroque music and classical music and stuff like that so lastingly powerful for us, I think, is that there were actually fairly strict rules about how those dissonance had to be treated harmonically. So that heart-wrenching feeling of something, of tones conflicting with one another, that all works because there were rules about how they resolve back. Yeah. And it plays to our expectations. And some of our expectations are met in such a beautiful way. And then some of our expectations are diverted in such a surprising way. And that's really what music is on a certain level. Yes. And this is a great thing to bring up when we're talking about like modern music and music that sounds to an ear that doesn't know it that just sounds all dissonant. The reason that's really unenjoyable is not because like, it's not really because you have not heard anything like that before. 
I mean, sometimes you hear new things and you love them. It's more just that the music doesn't have that expectation payoff. It's it's like what you were just saying. It doesn't have that idea where the, you can feel the composer going, yep, I know what you thought that was going to be and I'm going to do it or I'm going to do something different or whatever. Instead, it's just all different and you, your brain doesn't have anything to latch on to. So I think some of the best like modern classical music even if it might sound dissonant to somebody who hasn't heard that before, some of the best stuff of that uh, genre has its own sense of like dissonance and resolution that gives the music some meaning. Otherwise, it's a little bit meaningless and it kind of speaks a little more to a nihilistic age, maybe, which is pretty undesirable if you're wanting a, if you're wanting like an emotional connection with music. Right. It makes it's almost like makes me jealous that Bach lived in an age where everybody was so receptive to all of his most complicated musical ideas. He could get so much out of out of his music. And the um, discantata is a perfect example of the economy of, of music and just getting so much out of so such simple materials and spinning it back and forth sideways and up and down all different ways. And for the people who were listening to get all of that, it must have been such an otherworldly, like transcendent experience and for it to be woven in with tunes that they recognized and then this beautiful sonatina. And I'm sure some of them actually objected to and thought it was, speaking of modern music, they thought it was just crazy what he was doing with these recorders. And I'm sure some people thought it was just off the wall because he was also innovating, which is just the most amazing thing because we always think of Bach as this traditional exemplary person of the Baroque era that is the height of everything. We don't really always think of him as an innovator, but like we've said before, he totally was. Especially in his earlier days, he was a little bit more experimental. And with texture, there's so many different aspects of music. And we were talking about dissonance and harmony and things like that, but there's also the idea of musical texture. When there's two recorders, are they as one or are they two different entities? Almost always in Baroque music, there's a very clear answer, right? Either everyone's together, these few people are playing together or singing together, or they're playing distinctly different parts. And this is not like that. This is like, okay, they're both playing, now one's playing, now they're both playing, now they're switching off in this weird, almost pulsating pattern. It's just so strange and wonderful all at the same time. And he's innovating musical texture. He's um, breaking the rules of what we would think as how many parts to this piece are there, you know, and it's shifting in and out, shimmering in such a way that is so, um, I keep using the word heart-wrenching, but it's for such a good effect. It's almost uh, the soul and the body being in conflict with each other, one leaving or one dying or something like that. There's a lot of metaphors with death you could easily stretch to here. But yeah, the the idea that these these people could have been so immediately affected by something like this, but also... We still are. I mean, we love we love stuff like this because even 300 years later, it stands the test of time. Well, yeah, and just what a powerful text along with it, too. I mean, you've got this one quote from Ecclesiastes that says, It is the ancient law. Human, you must die. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is full of stuff like that. And But then we hear, Yet come Lord Jesus. And then we hear a quote from Jesus when he, as a human, did die, knew that he must die, and committed his spirit to the Lord. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we're hearing the choir sing, human, you must die, but also singing, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. It's just really powerful stuff. 
yeah, it's it's music of the highest order. Like this is not this music is not just like everybody dies. That is the theme of this music. You know, <laughs> like there's so much going on. The interplay between the different texts, like you're saying, Alex, that happened during the movement where the soprano has that different text. Then it just the ending. There's this magnificent fugue at the end that ends on the most subtle of beautiful, unassuming note to end the whole cantata. It's truly a masterwork. It's like I can't say enough good things about it. I'm on record as saying that this is that uh, Gottest Zeit is the allerbeste cantata <laughs> because it's yeah, my favorite. That's right. It's not maybe my very favorite, but yes, I think that yeah, uh, I think that's definitely true. It is uh, remarkable as we say on this podcast. Yeah. What makes these moments remarkable? So many remarkable moments in this in this work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we talked about. I'm saying that my moment this week is is that uh, semi unison for the recorders, but we could come back to this piece nine more times and still have nine other moments and i can think of them there's just so many you know well maybe we'll keep doing the podcast for you know many more years and we'll get to all those moments in in time yeah we'll get back to this one for sure this one this is a gold mine yeah and now here is the opening sonatina from the cantata gottes zeit ist die allerbeste zeit also known as actus tragicus
If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of Gottes Zeit ist die allerbeste Zeit by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Thanks again to those of you who have been listening. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, and we have our own website, amomentofbach.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. So what's next, Alex? Next time, we'll be looking at the St. Matthew Passion, BWV 244. And very specifically, we're looking at the very last chorale movement. Um, Not the final movement of the work, but the last chorale movement, movement 62, which begins, Wenn ich einmal soll scheiden. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) 